we're going to start by reading together some scriptures, first of all from Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, and uh, as Mr. Harris has, has mentioned, my, my subject, and uh, the, the word subject, really, it's the word we're using, but it's a difficult word because we, we never want to contemplate God as a subject, and, and that's not what we're doing. We're not analyzing God. We're not subjecting him to our scrutiny. We're worshiping him, but we are considering him, and we want to gaze at him. And when you think of all of the turmoil in which our world is facing the wars and the, the death and the devastation and uh, the troubles for health and uh, economics, you might want to yourself, is the right thing to consider the holiness of God? Well, it is. It's the best thing we can do to take ourselves above this world and to gaze at his wonderful face. And I, I trust in some way uh, certainly I feel my, my great need this morning, I feel very inadequate for this subject, uh, but in some way that we consider him and the Lord himself is magnified on high. So a couple of verses to, to share with you before we just pray briefly and then turn to the word itself. Just one verse from Exodus chapter 15, and I have to be brief here when I mention Moses because the folks in Newton Arts have been hearing me mention Moses for two years and uh, they're, they're wondering when this man is going to stop. Uh, well, it's a verse we, we need to read, and uh, it's a while since we looked at this particular passage in our own church. So Exodus chapter 15, and just one verse, verse 11. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? We're going to read also from then two passages in Isaiah. I think a well-known portion, of course, is Isaiah chapter 6, from which we'll read just now. Isaiah 6, and then Isaiah 57. So you can, if you're good with turning up different passages at different times, you can just get Isaiah 57 ready as well. Isaiah chapter 6, please, and verses 1 to 5. Isaiah 6, 1 to 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain, or with two, he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And uh, you can mark that, please, brethren, and we'll read from... Uh, Isaiah chapter uh, 57 as well. I asked you to turn to it. I put my bookmark to one side, so I have to find it again myself. Isaiah chapter 57. And just again, one verse, brethren. Verse 15. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble 
and revive the heart of the contrite ones. Amen. We'll finish those readings there with that last verse. And we know that God will bless his precious word to our hearts. Brethren, do pray with me just now for a few moments. And may the Lord give you all the help that we need at, uh, around the word of God. Our Father, we acknowledge the immensity of thyself. And uh, we're not sufficient for these things. We sit here and we might have gathered all of our troubles of this week and brought them in some measure with us, but we pray for these things to be put to one side. We ask, Lord, for the lifting up of our hearts to Thee. Uh, Lord, I pray for the brethren who shall come afterwards that You will use them tremendously. That even now as they would think upon this message, it will begin to fit in with their own thoughts and now I'd be pleased to bring together every thought, every message, not for the excellence of men, not for the praise of a, a name of man, but for thine own glory. And if we leave this place but with a, a more keener and a sharper glimpse of God and a, an impact that changes us, Lord, we believe it will be a day well spent in thy presence. We thank thee for an occasion such as this. But above all of this, we thank thee for thyself. We rejoice in the God of all glory and the High and Holy One. Lord, have the preeminence. And Lord, come amongst us just now. We pray in the Saviour's name. Amen. Now, from my, my earliest years, I was taught that staring at people was uh, a rude thing to do. And I, I remember whether it was my mum or whether it was my dad or probably it was often a, a tendency which I had as a child that I would sit on a bus, I would stand in the street and as people would be watching and going by, I would be staring at these individuals. I don't know if that prepared me in some way for the ministry. Uh, time eventually is going to tell. But as I went through those, those early years, teenage years, and then the Lord gave me my own family, as with, with all good parenting skills that you sort of tend to pick up the good things when you're young and try to impart them to your own children, I, I realized this was a, a good element of parenting. And so for my four children, on occasions when I see them staring at individuals, uh, I recall to mind uh, what was said to me. And so I scold them accordingly. I've been waiting these many years to do this. And I stare them in the face and say, it is rude to stare at people. Now, the problem is with that parenting side of things is that it relies very much upon children listening to you and uh, obeying what you have to say. And uh, those who have come to know my children know there's, there's an aspect of them where rebellion sits quite well with them uh, when it comes to certain instructions. And I have this vivid memory in my mind when Zachary was around four or five years of age. I, I think it was su such a horrifying experience, I blanked it out in my mind. Uh, but I, I pitched it somewhere when he was four or five years old. We were in a high street, and uh, Naomi, as our good wives often do, disappeared into a craft shop that from the outside was a very small shop, but it was like a labyrinth inside, and it turned into several stores and levels which all were selling wool. I don't know why so much wool was required in the first place. But I, I did the typical man thing, and that was to stand on the outside to apply pressure on her on the inside. We're only going to be here for a few minutes. And I, I had Zachary sort of running in between two of us as pillars. He was running in to see where she was. He would got bored because of that male instinct that was already kicking in. And he ran to where I was on the outside. And on one of these occasions, he ran out with his face uh, beaming with, with almost joy. 
And uh, there was a lady that was behind him who wasn't filled with joy in her face. And uh, he came running up to me. And in the loudest voice he could possibly muster, and trust me, it was loud even at the age of four or five, he said, Dad, why has that woman got really weird purple hair? And um, if, if the ground could swallow me up, um, I, I was already digging the ground. I was trying to find those drills and <laughs> drill away into the ground to, to sink into despair. And I think I just gave him a quick, silent scold. You're not meant to stare in those situations. Well, brethren, this morning, we are meant to stare. We're meant to gaze. And we're going to gaze at the holiness of a mighty God. Now, understandably, this is a huge subject. It really is. Uh, It's immense. And as our brethren will follow, and I I believe readily acknowledge, as we look at all the various aspects, whether from a theological perspective or in the outworking of the holiness of God in our own lives, we feel our great need of him. But let me encourage you this day that we have a guide for us. We're not left to our own abilities to try to gaze and think and imagine what we believe God may be like. No, no, that's why we have the scriptures. We have the word of God because in these pages, God graciously and so wonderfully has revealed himself unto us. Think back to uh, the 90s. I know it's not that far ago for, for some folks, but it will be for some others And I think it was the late 80s or it was the early 90s. It was somewhere in between. Do you remember, and this shows you how I wasted my youth in in those days. Do you remember when there was that trend which broke out that was called the magic eye? Now, I I know for a men's meeting, it seems like a strange thing to introduce, but we'll we'll get there eventually. If If you can't remember what magic eye was or is, then I think when I start describing it, you'll understand. It was those those abstract, colorful posters where you would have, of course, no image there, but the idea was you were to look at these abstract images, these posters, and they were all sorts of colors, a sort of kaleidoscope of colors. And and the idea was to look for the 3D image that was inside this image. And this was a a fad. It was a, a trend which sort of broke out in schools and homes and towns and in communities. And sometimes you'd see these posters in bigger form on stands, or you'd have maybe at Christmas time or your birthdays books given to you with just page after page of these abstract posters. And the idea was to stare. And as you stare, you're going to try to find the 3D image that's inside this picture. Difficulty was, is that many of us had no idea what the image was. And you'd get all sorts of people giving you advice. And they would say, well, if you tilt your head at a certain angle, or if you squint your eyes, or if you turn upside down, if you do this or close your eyes, you're going to see what the 3D image is. And every now and then someone says, I see it. It's an elephant or a horse or something else. And I was always left scratching my head. I don't see it. I I, I don't understand what people are looking at here. It, It would be a terrible thing if we considered the holiness of God in such a manner The holiness of God is not an illusion. It is not something that requires us to have a special ability to understand it and perceive it. But what it does require, brethren, is that we gaze through the lens of Scripture and we ask the Lord sincerely with all of our hearts, Lord, show yourself to us. And I believe that he'll do this very thing. 
I believe that when we gaze at the holiness of God, as we shall do, that we will discover that not only are we not left to ourselves, we have the word of God, but what we discover is that the, the, the very act of gazing at the holiness of God is what we call transformative. It, it, it changes us, and brethren, it has to change us. It has to change me. The, the impact of God's holiness on our lives must be immense and it must be total. It must be, as we often say, comprehensive. And it must impact all aspects of our Christian life. It must impact our worship, as we shall see towards the end of this message. It must impact our evangelism. There's something that's not often mentioned, the holiness of God impacting our evangelism, but it must, and it should, and it does. Our daily living, our homes, our relationships, our conversation, our quiet times. In fact, there is not one area in which the holiness of God does not have an impact in our life. Now, why is this? Is it because we're discovering some aspect of the being of God that maybe has been hidden from view all these years? No, because essentially, when we consider the holiness of God, we are considering God himself. We're looking at God himself, and it's God who impacts the whole of our life. And that's why we must gaze and look and consider with all the help and the grace of God. I want to look at this, this uh, message in two ways. And uh, I've tried to make this as simple and straightforward as I can, while at the same time covering all of the necessary areas. We want to gaze at its meaning. That's the first thing, brethren. And then as we shall finish, we want to gaze at its manifestation. We want to gaze at the meaning, and we want to ask the question, because this is where we have to begin, what do we mean? What are we talking about when we mention the holiness of God? After all, we look at our Bibles, don't we, and from page to page, and from book to book, and from beginning to end, of all the words that dominate every sacred page of Holy Scripture itself is the word holy. And whether it's the word holy or whether it's the word holiness, we find that this is one of the many stand-up words in our Holy Scriptures. Now I'm going to quote a number of times from one of the great Puritans, Stephen Charnock. He uh, wrote on the attributes of God and wrote extensively on the holiness of God. Listen to him when he says this. And he, what he does, he gives an illustration, uh, an analogy to help us as we consider God's holy being. And he said, when we take the picture of a man, we draw the most beautiful part, the face, which is the member of the greatest excellency. Now what Charnock is saying there when he's describing the holiness of God, he's, he's not saying that we divide God into section and parts and we say, well, here is one thing that is more prominent or if we reduce it down and say better than other parts of God because everything that he is he is holy and he is perfectly and is infinitely so so we cannot divide God into sections or segments we're not doing that this day so what Stephen Sharnock is saying there as with all who comment on the attributes of God and especially the holiness of God is that just as an artist would sit down to paint a portrait or to paint a picture of an individual, while every aspect of that person is essential and critical, the individual is, is understood by the face, it's the countenance. 
It's the glory of what we see in that facial expression. Now, God is not revealed to us in terms of bodily parts. He's spirit and he's infinitely so. But he does in Holy Scripture speak in such ways in which he speaks of his arm and he speaks of his countenance and he speaks of his heart. And what many are agreed with is this, is that when we consider the holiness of God, it's as if a portrait is being painted and we're saying, where is his countenance? Where is his glory? Is it not there in his holiness, in all that he is? And that same individual, the same Puritan, goes on to make the point that if power be the arm of God, and if omniscience is his eye, and if mercy be his bowels, then holiness is his beauty. And I think it's a tremendous way by which we introduce ourselves into our definition. And now we can start to sketch out this portrait and understand what we mean. How do we define the holiness of God? We define it essentially in two ways. First of all, we will define it in what I've called magisterial excellence. Magisterial excellence. And you say, well, what, what do we mean by magisterial excellence or glory or beauty, whatever word we wish to use? It is what God is apart from all others and what God is in relation to his creation. There is none like him. That's fundamentally what we're dealing with in this first definition. And that's why we read from Exodus chapter 15, brethren, and you can turn back to it if you wish. You can just follow along as I explain it. And verse 11, remember it was Moses' great song. Remember, brethren, in Moses, uh, when he gives this song in chapter 15 of Exodus, what is he doing? He's singing about the triumph of God. And Moses, what do you do as you begin to sing about the triumph of God? Well, he begins to outline all that God is to him and to the people of God. Listen to him, and you can turn to chapter 15. You can sketch this out in your own mind's eye. And Moses talks about God being his strength, and God being his song, and God being his salvation. And he says, Lord, this is all that you are. You're my strength and song and you're my salvation and then he begins to to sing about all that God has done what is it that God has done he's he's dashed the enemies in pieces and he rejoices in the righteousness of God and he's delivered his needy people from their despair and, and he's overthrown the enemy and when it comes to verse 15 it's something of a crescendo it's something of a great climax and Moses as he sings he gazes, and he thinks, and he considers, and he says, O oh God, who is like unto thee? And this is what I mean by his magisterial excellence, or his magisterial glory, or his beauty, that Moses stresses that the holiness of God sets him apart from all others. O oh God, who is like unto thee? Verse 15, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. And that was the lead thought in Moses' mind. God is set apart from all others. And brethren, in that we have our first insight into what we mean by God's holiness. That he is set apart, he is separate. Many will use the word transcendent, he's, he's above us. I believe the, the, the root meaning, if you go far back into the Latin, 
of transcendency. It's this idea of climbing over. He's rising far above over. He's not like us. He is the Holy One of Israel. And when you consider the word holy as it's given to us, especially in Old Testament scriptures, and you trace the meaning of that word, and you start to realize how it's given in scripture and how it's interpreted, it gives us the understanding of separate or to be cut and set apart. And it's important that we, ask, we, we remind ourselves of that this day. And when God commands his people to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, what, what, what is the Lord commanding his people to do? He's telling them to keep it apart from all others. He's telling them to separate it from all others. Well, why is this? Because there in Genesis 2 and 3, when the Lord had made all things in those space of six days, and then he rested the seventh, he hallowed it, he sanctified it, and he set it apart for himself. It is God's holy day. It is his magisterial day. It is the most excellent day. And when the Lord speaks of it, it is not the attributing of a moral ethic to a day, because that can't happen. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we live as we want on the Lord's day. We don't. But the principle of living godly on his day is rooted in this very fact that it's a day that God has set aside for himself. It is his day which is set apart. He is set apart. This is the one that we're gazing at and we worship. When God, by his Holy Spirit, and we'll look at this more with the brethren in the next few sessions, sanctifies his people, he does this because when he saved us, brethren, he set us apart. He made us holy. And that's not saying he made us perfect, but it's a work which has already begun. We are set apart. And so at the very first level of understanding the holiness of God, and we seek to define it at his magisterial excellence, what we are talking about here is this truth that he is the one who is high, and he is the one who is lofty. And it brings us to the, the classical passage of Isaiah chapter 6, that many would, would turn to on such an occasion as this. You know the passage well, don't you? We read from it just now. Isaiah, uh, the king, has, has died. It's a, it's a milestone stone moment for Judah in many respects, because here is a king that reigned for, what, over 50 years? 52 years, I believe, and it came to an end. Now, his, his reign wasn't perfect, and towards the end, left, less than to be desirable, but there was a significance to his reign in many other ways. An important reign. And where many may have despaired and feared and wondered, and often you see that, don't you, in society, when there are significant events which take place. Now, we're living again in, in the days where significance is certainly before us in the news. And there will always be those occasions when something significant takes place. So what do we do as men and brethren and Christians who love God? Are we overwhelmed? No. Are we filled of despair? No. Isaiah, when he died, I, here is Isaiah, and, and he says in that same year, in that year that would cause men and women to tremble and to be afraid, I saw a greater king, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And Isaiah was taken up with a far greater gaze. And I say to us this day, whatever we read on the news tomorrow or in the past week or whatever the month is going to be ahead of us. 
We need to lift up our minds and thoughts higher above those headlines. Always. To the one who fills his temple, as Isaiah reminds us in chapter 6. And there as this, this vision, this sight begins to unfold. It's, it, it's, it's different in terms and expressions that we, we feel so humbled by. Because here are the seraphims. And they cover their eyes. And here are these angels, these holy angels, and they cover their faces. And they cover their feet, and they cry, it's holy, he is holy, he is infinitely holy. As many will identify, it's raised to what we call the superlative, to the highest degree. So here was a king who did significant things, but wasn't wasn't perfect but here is the eternal king and his magisterial excellence none like him none like him you know there's a, a parallel passage to isaiah 6 in revelation 4 and verse 8 where we're given a very similar glimpse it's the four beasts i'm not going to enter into the eschatology and the the matching up with one with the other but just simply to remind you that it's a very similar picture Revelation 4, verse 8, the four beasts cry the same thing. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. What strikes me in John's vision in Revelation 4 is that he makes the point that they did not rest day and night. In other words, they were continually employed in the praise of the holiness of God. And I say to each of us here that we must be continually continually given to the praise of God in this glorious truth. O God, there is none like you who is like unto our God. He's holy. And so it relates to his magisterial excellence. Well, the other definition is the one that I, I, I suggest that most of us commonly think about. And it's what we call his moral excellence or his purity. And we have to remember this because it relates, and all good Bible teachers, and you read the theologians and the great men who've written these works in times past, they'll always refer at some point to what they call the moral purity or the excellence of God. There's, there's one more recent times, Greg Nichols, who, when he's writing on the doctrine of God, he says this, he refers to the holiness of God as God's absolute impeccability which separates him and sets him vehemently against all sin. And so whereas we look at the holiness of God as to his excellence, that is how God is in relation to us, there's none like him. We then naturally ask the question, of God's relationship to sin itself. He's impeccable. He's pure. He's holy. He's unsullied light. He's, he's, he's light and in him there's no darkness. This is who he is. Now, I want to ask you a question. Uh, brethren, you don't have to shout out the answer, by the way. Uh, that just put me off my, my, my rhythm. But you can think about it as the question goes out. Maybe it'll be a question you want to ask, so hopefully it's one less question for later on. Was God holy from all eternity? Was God holy before the advent and the entrance of sin? Well, I hope we all would ask, answer the question and say, yes, of course. The, the, the holiness of God is from all eternity. 
before Adam transgressed, before sin entered this world. Listen to Isaiah 57 verse 15. For thus saith the High and the Lofty One that inhabiteth eternity, and so the attribute of eternity is given to all that God is. If we begin to think in any way like this, that God becomes something over time, then we do not understand him. Everything that God is, he has always been and he should always be. And he will not grow more in it and he will not grow less in it. Now that's something that boggles the mind, isn't it? Because we're creatures of change and we, we, we adapt and we find there are various things in our life that, that come and go. We might pick up skills, we might lose skills, we might pick up looks. We always lose our looks, don't we? We change and we're given to change. But in this, in this, God infinitely remains all that he is. He's eternally holy. Now, I, I believe, and I want to contend for this as I make this particular point, that that aspect of the eternal element of God's holiness came almost into its own, we might say, when Adam sinned. And you think about it just for these few moments. Because before the entrance of sin, what is it that Adam enjoyed? Unbroken fellowship. He could walk with God and he could talk with God. Now, God was still uh, that, that holy God and he was apart from Adam. Adam knew that. Adam knew who his creator is. But as Adam sinned and transgressed the law of God, and there, as the Bible teaches us in an awful moment, when the eyes of Adam and Eve were opened, their eyes were not opened in the way that Satan had whispered lies into their ears. No, no. When their eyes were opened, brethren, what did Adam see? He saw his shame. He saw his reproach. He saw his own wickedness because he saw himself now in absolute contrast to God's infinite, eternal, moral purity. So not only did Adam cry, there is none like God. He also now cries, and I'm a sinner. And he is holy and pure. And there was a gaze that Adam had never had before. And yet now a gaze that must demand our utmost attention. To use the words again of Isaiah, in his own words, the prophet, head and shoulders above all others. What does he say in verse 5? Woe is me, this man of God. And he says, woe is me, this child of God who's set apart for holy things. And he says, I am a man of unclean lips. You see, there was a twofold definition that Isaiah understood. Magisterial excellence, none like him, he's separate. But in relationship to his own need... His moral purity. And that for me is the, the, the most simplest way of grasping the definition of the holiness of God. I, I know that much more could be said and probably should be said, but that's enough for me on that matter. And I finish with this. What about the manifestation? What about the manifestation of the holiness of God? Now, we, we, when we take on board the, the twofold meaning, then we can appreciate that in one sense, and in every sense, everything that God is, is holy. And then we can say this, everything that God has done, and everything that God does do, and everything that God shall do is holy. Isn't that right? Everything that he is and everything that he does is set apart from us, 
higher than the heavens, and it's always perfect. It's always pure, it's always right, and it's always true. Now, I, I, I won't have time to go into all of the areas that people often raise questions in, but what I would say is that rule, that, that thought, it's the, it's the seedbed by which you begin to answer so many of the objections which are raised against God and his existence and what he does and why this happens, because he's holy. And so everything he does and is is holy. Now, we could scan the Bible and see many examples of God's holiness manifest. We, we, we can remind ourselves, don't we? We look at the heavens. We look at the heavens and they say, well, they declare the glory of God. But in declaring the glory of God, it's the holiness of God. Because what we're saying, well, who has done all these things? It is only God. And there's none like him. He's holy. And the heavens declare holiness unto us. And then when God gave the law at Sinai, a law that we already know was written upon the heart of Adam, but now, of course, uh, depravity is set in, so it must be codified, it must be written and given. It's an administration of his great grace towards the needy world. And when God gives his holy law at Sinai, what is the law? Well, we read in Scripture, it is holy, it's pure, it's perfect, it's good. What does the law of God do? It shows us God's holiness. It shows us who he is, doesn't it? That's why men and women do not want it. Not because it's unjust, not because it's, it's, it's not right, not because it's not equal. There's nothing more just and perfect and equal than God's law. It's because it's holy. And it, it scrutinizes us to the nth degree. And it shows every aspect of our depravity and why we need a holy saviour. God manifests his holiness in creation, in the law. Well, he manifested his holiness even in the tabernacle, didn't he? When, when the Israelites were in their journeys and, and their wanderings, and there they were given the, 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 the tabernacle. And if you read the likes of Exodus and you read Leviticus, every time we read the, the different elements, the furniture, the, 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 the types and the pictures and all the aspects, what do we read? Holy garments. The holy place, the holy things, the holy gifts, the holy crown, the holy altar, the holy ointment. It just keeps on going on. Every page breathes this truth. It manifests. And if there's anything that manifests itself to us as we read the word of God, it's this. He's holy. And it confronts us every single day. I, I leave these two particular areas of manifestation with you. And I, and I do this for good reason. God's sovereign dealings with men manifest holiness. How he deals with us shows us how holy he is. There are a lot of examples, uh, men, that we could turn to, but we're going to look at one in particular, and that's um, Uzzah and the Ark of the Covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's a, it's a well-known passage. Again, it's often treated by men who write upon these subjects as, a, as an illustration, because it's very challenging. And um, if we don't understand the holiness of God, we're going to struggle with 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're going to find it really difficult to know what it means. And we know the passage, don't we, relatively well, and if you don't, let me just refresh you for these just few minutes the Ark of the Covenant symbolizing both the presence of God and many refer to as the throne of God, it's in transit. 
It's meant to be a joyous occasion. It's been in the hands of the Philistines, and now it's being returned back to David and his people. But it's going through a journey. And as it comes across an area referred to as a threshing floor, and it reaches this place, the oxen, they stumble, and the cart upon which the Ark of the Covenant, by the way, it shouldn't have been placed there, but it was on there for any, for any matter, and it was in transit, it stumbles, and here we have this man, Azur, and he puts out his hand to steady the cart, but he puts his hand on the Ark of the Covenant. Well, that seems like a, a, an honourable thing to do. You don't want it to fall into the dirt. You don't want it to be desecrated, as maybe he thought. But in that moment, God struck him dead. And you'll get many people that come to that passage and they'll say, well, that just isn't right. Here was a man that was trying to stop the Ark of the Covenant from falling into the dirt and the ground and, and from it being uh, desecrated and so forth. And what, God strikes this man dead for doing this? And time and time again, as people come to the Bible with their criticisms and their critiques, they, they look at how God will intervene in judgment and will seemingly almost just remove people from the face of the earth for what they perceive to be small things. And that's the problem. We see things small, and we see sins, and we see transgressions, and we see actions in small, then we do not acknowledge the greatness of God's holiness. Now, one of the, the leading writers on this subject who has also dealt with the holiness of God, the late Dr. Sproul, that many of you have heard and you probably read his works on the holiness of God, he, he treats this passage so well, and I recommend that you either listen to it or read it, because his commentary on the, on the, the matter of, of Azra in 2 Samuel 6 is unrivaled in many respects. And, and, he, and he goes on to make the point that when we look at Azra, we're dealing with a man who knows better. He knows that he should not be touching. He's raised not to touch the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark should not even be on the cart. There are loops. It should be carried on, on poles on the shoulders. It should not be on a cart. That's the first area of, of sin and wrongdoing. And that seems to be almost forgotten by the people. But the one thing he was trained to, to, to never do from a, a youth to his, his adult age is you don't put your hand on that which is holy. You do not touch that which is infinitely holy. You do not touch that which is the visible presence of God himself. And, and here the presumptuousness of Uzzah is brought to us in a sprawl, and I call him in this particular stage, says he assumed his hands were less polluted than the dirt of the ground. And he imagined that he could do this, that he could put his hands on that which is God's. And he couldn't. And he shouldn't, and he must not. And when God strikes him dead, it reinforces the truth that we need reinforced into our lives. He's holy. And we don't touch that which is his. And as I thought about that, it really spoke to me. There's a lovely phrase that we often say, don't we? It's found in 1 Chronicles 16, 29, Psalm 29, verse 2. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. What does it mean? It means that we, we worship him from holy motives. 
It means that we worship him in a holy manner. It means that we worship him in awareness of all that God is in his holiness. Can I say this to you uh, by way of application? How different our approach to God's house is going to be when we gaze at the holiness of God. How, how, how different, how different will our whole life be? For those of us who preach, some, some of us who preach here in the house of God, how different is our sermon preparation going to be? How, how different is our, our presentation and our preaching of the word of God going to be when we are consumed by the holiness of God? I can't touch this book and preach this message flippantly, lightly, carelessly. I can't do that. And we should not do this. And we can't lift up our hymn books and sing his praise. And when we give and when we come together, he is holy. And it must manifest itself in our worship. It has to. And with much worship that is often referred to as horizontal worship, man to man, self to self, individual to individual, and what is missing, what is missing, and which, what transforms us for horizontal, man-oriented worship is when we glimpse the holiness of God, it takes us to the vertical plane, where it's our hearts elevated to the one who is most high. That doesn't mean that we contrive our experiences, and it doesn't mean that we, we're, we're trying to force ourselves in any way, but what it means, it, 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 it impacts us immediately in the very core of our heart, so that we are in God's presence. And it's manifest. The dealings of a holy God with men impact me. And the other area of which I close is this. God's saving work through Christ manifests the holiness of God. I, I, I had every intention to finish here. Whenever the subject was given to me, it's where I wanted to get to. It was the, the message of my heart. If we are ever to gaze at the holiness of Christ or God, then we must contemplate our Savior who is holy. Listen to one of the great descriptions given to our Savior in Hebrews 7, 26. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. I mean, if we wanted just a verse to encapsulate everything we want to say, you've got it right there before your eyes. That's who he is. How much we need him. And how much we need him. Otherwise we cannot stand before God who is holy. We need him as our mediator. As our go-between, as our veil, as our covering, as our righteousness, as our justification. It was Matthew Henry who says the Lord Jesus was exactly such a high priest as we wanted. For he has personal holiness. Absolutely perfect. I said earlier on in my introduction, holiness of God impacts your evangelism. How does it impact your evangelism? Because you go to men and women and you say, this is God and he's infinitely holy and he's apart from you and he's set apart and he's like, none else. And there's no comparison and you can't forge an image and make a likeness unto him and you can't imagine anything that he is in your eye. And this is who you are, a wretched sinner, poor and needy, and that poor soul says, so how can I get to a holy God? And we say, there's a holy saviour, a holy redeemer. 
And he's the only way. And if ever we are to glimpse at the holiness of God in a way like no other, it is when we come to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In, in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the holiness of God in respect to his magisterial excellence is in prime view. Because what it is, it's saying this, the way of the cross is like no other. The world after its own wisdom will not please and find God. And God gave the world, we might use these expressions, much time, many centuries, even millennia. Okay, well, you do it your own way. Uh, no, it's the, it's the wisdom of God, the cross, it's the power, it's the holiness of God. There's, there's no message like that message. It confounds men. It shows them how foolish we are. And the holiness of God then sets forth the moral purity of God in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In leading up to Calvary, we see the worst of men, don't we? We see the ugly face of sin. We see their jeers and their hate and their contempt because that's what we would be and that's what we would have done. We see faces of men set against God's holy child, Jesus, because they didn't want him. They could not tolerate him. When they saw him in life, they could only say, what manner of man is this? And when they see him in death, what man is this? Even a centurion, as he sees our Christ so crying out, this, this truly this righteous man, he's the son of God, there's none like him. He's holy, he's pure, but there he is in the middle tree. And in that moment when God punishes that man of Calvary, he pulls across the veil of darkness, because behind the veil of darkness... As he, as he puts to, to death and punishment our Savior. Listen. Listen to our Savior. When, when David echoes his heart in Psalm 22, verse 2. Maybe you've come to the men's conference with a whole host of personal burdens. And maybe you've, you've sat here and you're, you're dismissing it now because you're thinking to yourself, I don't know, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this situation. I'm in a real problem here and I can't tell anyone. Can I tell you that the wholeness of God in Christ is the answer? You say, well, please tell me, how, how is that the answer? Psalm 22, verse 2 and 3. Messianic words. It, it is David's experience, but we know it's, it's speaking further of Christ. Listen to him. Psalm 22, verse 2. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and, and I'm not silent, but verse 3, he says, but thou art holy. And what, what, is, he, what is he saying? I, I'm, I, I don't know the way out. I'm crying here. I'm in great need, but, I, but I, I give myself over to God who is holy, and being in holy, he's perfect and trust and true and righteous and will do all the things which are right. I can trust him. And in, in, a, in a way that I, I don't know how to explain. I, I don't know what words to use today as I, as I bring us to a close. Here our Lord Jesus Christ is in his humanity crying out unto God. And in that great suffering, as, as darkness falls, 
and as the sins of a multitude are poured upon him, and, and he says, I cry out, am I going to be heard? But he, he gives himself over to the perfect will of God, not mine, but yours be done, because you are holy. And that, that moves me to absolute surrender and trust. I finish again with the Puritan, Stephen Charnock, who said this. Holiness drew the veil between God's countenance and our Savior's soul. Justice indeed gave the stroke, but holiness ordered it. And in this, his purity did spark.